Welcome to episode number 13 of the Marine Layer Podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we will preview second base, our only Mariners segment of the day. We'll take a look at the second base position for the Mariners in 2023. With our interviews the last couple of weeks, we've fallen behind on some of the more national stuff. We'll catch up with that today. A Luis Arise trade, he's going to the Marlins, Pablo Lopez going back to Minnesota, a couple extensions to look at as well, and also Hall of Fame results, all things to sort of collect as this podcast goes along that we've missed over the last couple of weeks or so. We'll close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you into the Marine Podcast. Recording here, unlike we normally do, on Monday, January 30th. I have some high school basketball to do tomorrow on Tuesday, so we're, we're going to record here on a Monday instead. A little bit unusual for us, Lyle, but I can't complain too much. No, it'll probably give me a little bit of extra sleep, so that's that's more than fine on my end. Are we looking forward to high school basketball tomorrow? Uh, it's an interesting setup. I, I don't believe you've done any high school basketball, right? Not to your level. Okay. So the 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 uh, the school I'm calling for tomorrow, this setup is really interesting. So I'll just kind of detail it a little bit before we, we get into our Mariners stuff today. It really is an interesting setup. First, high school basketball, very, very interesting, very intriguing. Got to keep your own stats, keep your own scoring as the game goes along at basketball. It might seem a little fast, but you, you keep up with it pretty well. But the, the, the point where... I'm calling the game from it's kind of up in the corner of the gym. I'm almost like I'm almost in the wall of the of the back of the back wall of the gym. It's called the press box, quote unquote, the stairs to get up there are almost, it's almost a ladder straight up. So if you fall, I mean, you're probably dead to be honest. It's an interesting angle to call a game from because you got to stick your head out the window to, to see all sorts of things, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the first time I was there last Thursday we we're originally supposed to do this game on Friday, but some start times got mixed up with Oregon State, so we had to change which game we were going to call and put that on Tuesday, making us record here on Monday. So that should be interesting. You know, it would be funny if we were to do the podcast, you know, I set up and record the podcast from that press box and then open it up and just call, call the high school basketball game right when we're done. But I think this works out a little bit better for recording purposes. It would be kind of a pain to get my mic up there. I'm going to be honest. I can only imagine. I have learned something. I have learned something, dog. Much like, unlike college football, we've had a lot of experience in in the college aspect of calling games, being at school. High school, you're in all sorts of places, in all sorts of angles, with all sorts of setups. It really is intriguing every place you go to. And I've enjoyed it to a point. And it, it is really a balance. I don't think any setup will ever beat the Raptor cage in Wareham in the Cape Cod League, which you and I both got to experience. Actually, you barely had to do it because you were only there once in two years. Yeah. But man, when you have to sit up on that thing, it doesn't feel very stable. The players can hear everything you're saying because they're right, they're right beneath you in the dugout. I mean, it literally looks like you're trapped in a cage. So yeah, there can be some bad high school basketball vantage points. I don't know if anything can top Wareham, though. And the best thing really about calling a game is you have a nice central view and you only have to move your head this way and this way, not this way and this way and all those other ways, which get you away from all the things that help you be familiar with the team in front of you. And it just makes it more choppy. And I know we're both perfectionists when it comes to, to doing this and, and calling games as well. So when you don't have that ideal setup, which you won't at the lower levels of pretty much everything, doesn't work out quite as well. So it'll be interesting tomorrow, Doug. So uh, tune in, 7 o'clock or probably about 7.50. It'll actually get away underway on time. Another thing I realized about high school basketball, start times are always late because there's always a game in front of it. But tomorrow, I don't believe that'll be the case. I'm happy with that. Anyways, let's get into our Mariners stuff for today. It's a pretty light Mariners week. We're approaching spring training about two and a half weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting to Mariners spring training. I believe it's two weeks from Thursday. Don't quote me on that. I'm 
pretty sure it's two weeks from Thursday. Of course, an earlier report date because of the WBC, especially for pitchers and catchers. They got to get ready early. <clears throat> Luis Castillo, unfortunately, it has to get ready early to go pitch for the Dominican Republic. So they're going to be there early. And it's giving us time to get into these these positional previews, which we're going to do today. And today, we're going to preview second base. Lyle, this is one of the more interesting positions to preview, one you're very high on especially. But the more we dig into the numbers, the combination of Colton Long and Dylan Moore, just an overall aspect of how I'm looking at the, this position, it should be an upgrade in 2023. Maybe not a 100% certainty, but you're pretty confident you would agree that this position is going to be an upgrade for this upcoming season. On paper, it's absolutely an upgrade because they're playing to the guy's strengths. Just to set the table a little bit in case anybody is unaware, the plan for the Mariners going forward here in 2023, at second base, they're going to have Colton Wong and Dylan Moore platoon. They're going to play Colton Wong for the most part against righties because Wong's strong side is against right-handed pitching. And they're going to play Dylan Moore, who's been a platoon guy the last couple of years, mostly at second base against lefties because Dylan Moore crushes left-handed pitching. So yeah, it's... It feels like an upgrade from Adam Frazier for sure, who didn't strike out a lot, but he also did not hit the ball very hard. He didn't have a lot of power. His ceiling was pretty low. With these guys, I'm not going to sit here and say they're going to be 2014 Robinson Cano, but they have strengths that can contribute to a winning roster for sure. Speaking of Robinson Cano, really enjoyed putting together this short form video on Sunday that we published actually right now here on Monday. So if you haven't seen it by the time you're listening to this podcast on Wednesday, go check it out. I I thought it was so funny, the fact that while we had pictures of Robinson Cano after the Mariners and we're talking about what free agent contracts look like in your age 38 season, he is a Met, a Brave, and a Padre. And some of them, and I left out the SpongeBob uniform. Which was even, which was the best one of the of the four. Yeah. That picture just wasn't high quality enough. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, I do think that both Wong and Moore are going to put up some production because again, they're really trying to cater to these players with this platoon. They're going to platoon at a couple positions this year, at least to start the year, and maybe the most prominent one is second base. Let's start with Colton Wong, the new addition. We're going to break it down person by person. Let's start with Colton, Colton Wong. He's on the third year of a three-year, $24 million deal. Remember, he would have the, the Mariners would have loved him in Seattle, and he was very interested in coming into Seattle in the, off, the 2020 offseason. They didn't want to offer Colton Wong a third year on his contract. Or no, sorry, it was prior to the 2021 season. So 2021. So he's looking for a third year on his contract. Him and the Mariners both had interest, but the Mariners weren't willing to give Colton Wong a third year. So he ended up signing with the Brewers. So that third year is essentially what the Mariners, that they didn't want to offer him, is what the Mariners are going to pay him here in 2023. Last year with the Brewers, a 117 WRC+. plus. He stole 17 bases as well. And as Lyle mentioned, he's a platoon guy. He faced he mostly faced righties. He was very successful against righties. A 135 WRC plus against righties. And another thing I noted, Lyle, that we mentioned when we previewed Colton Wong when he got traded to the Mariners, is that he just he had a couple injuries that were nagging him throughout the season. But once June hit, he was a pretty elite hitter. Overall, he had a 132 WRC plus from June 1st on. Mariners would take that kind of production from second base. Yeah, Adam Frazier did not put up a 132 WRC plus, that's for sure. <laughs> really? Well, <laughs> he came close. Oh, wait. No, he didn't. Um, but look, Wong, Wong has been an underratedly good hitter almost his entire career. I mean, look at three of his last four years. He's posted an OPS plus of 108 or better. That means he was at least 8% better than league average or greater than that in three of his last four seasons. The only season he didn't do that was 2020, where he didn't have as much time in a short year. So the last three full seasons he's played, he's been a really productive bat. And like you said, really crushes righties. His OPS was 845 against righties this past year. This is a good bat. Again, I'm not going to sit here and say he's going to hit 30 home runs. 
I'm not going to sit here and say he's going to have the most power in the lineup. But you should expect Colton Wong to provide some real production, and his track record would back that up. The only thing I'm a little bit worried about with Colton Wong, obviously he had his two career highs in home runs when he was a brewer. And that's a very hitter-friendly park. It's I clicked on the wrong tab there, so I'm, give me a second here. But he, he, as we know, uh, American Family Fields in Milwaukee is a very hitter-friendly ballpark. Very, very hitter-friendly. And again, two of his best power seasons, his, his top two ISO seasons, were both in a Milwaukee Brewers uniform. So I don't think we can expect... You, you said, you know... Don't expect 30 home runs. I don't know if he even gets to 10 this year, to be honest. If we're talking about the hitting environment switch from Milwaukee to Seattle. But there's still room there for a productive player. And let's not forget, if we go onto the defensive side of the ball as well with Colton Wong, he had a bit of an iffy defensive season last year. A lot of people suspected that was due to an injury. If we look before that, I mean, Colton Wong was a very, very good defender. Uh, so if we look at 2022, net, minus one defensive run state. But Justin Hollander himself came out and said he wasn't a big believer in the the fact that that was, uh, was going to be a future for Colton Wong with his defense. So if you look back at, at 2019 and 2020, won a gold glove in each of those two seasons. And in fact, if you go back one year before that, 2018 and 2019, those are the two best sort of analytical season defensive seasons of his career. Defensive runs saved, outs above average, ultimate zone rating. All three of those metrics really loved Wong in those two seasons, and that's really not that long ago. And for a position at second base, which can age a little bit better than some other higher uh, higher turmoil positions, say in the outfield or shortstop. I'll respond with two points. First, to quickly touch on your point of his home run total. Yeah, I, I don't think he's going to get anywhere close to 25, even 20 home runs this year. You're right. It might just be 9 or 10. But the reason we sit here on this podcast and talk about WRC Plus and OPS Plus is because those are park-adjusted stats. So he can have balls not physically leave the yard and still be a, a well-above-average hitter. But now transitioning over to his defense, your second point. Not only have metrics favored him most of his career, and I'm with you, I think injuries played a big part as to why he did not have a good defensive year last year, because again, he's had too many good seasons in the field to just fall off like that so drastically, unless something was going on. Along with, he now is going to have one of the best infield coaches on the planet helping him out. You look at what Perry Hill's done for the Mariners in his time as an infield coach. Eugenio Suarez was a disaster of a defender in Cincinnati multiple years. He fixed him this past year. He was great. J.P. Crawford had defensive issues in Philly and early in his career in Seattle. Perry Hill fixed him. J.P. Crawford, in two of his last three years, has been one of the best defensive shortstops in baseball. And Ty France, he's now become a plus defender. So that's first base, shortstop, and third base that Hill's all, all had an impact on. With a guy like Colton Wong that's played such great defense most of his career, I feel like Perry Hill can tweak a thing or two with them and help get Wong back on track. Now I texted you about this yesterday and you're right about his defense. You are. I'm I'm I think he's going to be a good defender, especially a he's not going to have as much wear and tear on himself cuz he's not going to be playing every single day. Dylan Moore is going to split with him. We'll get into Dylan Moore here in a little bit. But I texted you about this. We flip back to his offense. If we're talking about how is he going to bring it over to the Mariners? This has nothing to do with Park and everything to do with who he has faced. I I laughed when I saw these numbers yesterday, Lyle. Colton Wong versus the Reds and Pirates last season. 328 average, 396 on base, 595 slugging, a 173 WRC plus from Colton Wong against just two teams. The entire everyone else, the rest of the league, he had a 96 WRC plus. Now that balances out a little bit over the course of a season. But Lyle, are we worried that Colton Wong's not going to have enough poverty pitching staffs and organizations to face over the course of a season to be a productive offensive player? Uh, I'm sorry. Does that team in Oakland not exist anymore? <laughs> yeah, you're right. 
You are right. You're right. And don't hurt so, the Angels either. Yeah, I mean, if he doesn't have to face Otani, there's nobody in that rotation that's really going to blow him away, especially because if somebody like Reed Detmers is on the mound, Wong's probably not going to be playing, and Detmers is a lefty. Yeah, I, I mean, look, he feasted on bad pitching. A lot of players feast on bad pitching. Do I think that's going to make or break Wong's season this year? No. I mean, again, you want to see him hit the elite guys, but not a whole lot of players in baseball light up Jacob deGrom or light up Framber Valdez when Wong will have to face those guys. Or I guess he won't face Framber much because, again, that's another lefty. I'll say McCullers. But it is an interesting point because it shows that, yeah, he took advantage of some bad teams and some bad rotations. Can he do that again in 2023 and it still bumps his offensive production and boosts his season to have a good year? For sure. I mean, offense is offense, right? Personally, it wouldn't be something I'm too worried about. Stats get skewed all the time. And you always have to face, you will eventually face bad teams. It's not like Colton Wong's only in the lineup against the Astros, against the Yankees, against the Blue Jays. I mean, he's in the lineup every single day. So, and you said it, so that puts it, that puts it in perspective, but I, I just had to laugh. I, <laughs> we, look, we look at the Reds and Pirates so much and they're just one of those stats where you just shake your head and it's like, man, oh man, you let Colton Wong slug 600 against you. 600. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something. One thing I noticed about Wong, if we flip back to his defense now, this doesn't really matter all that much either. He's never had a good arm at all. I mean, his arm strength ranks in the bottom five percentile of the league almost every year. But when you play second base, I guess that doesn't really matter all that much. It was just something interesting I noticed when looking at Colton Wong and his savant page that, yeah, he's never had a strong arm. But that's probably the least of the Mariners' concerns. If he's playing second base, playing good defense, and hitting well, they'll take it. Well, let's just hope he's not the fill-in shortstop. I don't think he will be. Yeah, I think that'll be uh, that'll be his co-second baseman, Dylan Moore, who we can uh, we can get to now. Dylan's got an interesting case this year, Lyle. I mean, not only is he plat- he's the platoon second baseman, he's your backup shortstop, he's your backup third baseman, and he's also your best backup corner outfielder as well. After we look, I mean, you could throw Sam Haggerty in there too. But, you know, him and Sam are about equal when it comes to how good they are in a corner outfield spot, both defensively and offensively. So this makes it for a very interesting position for Dylan Moore to also be the platoon side of second base. It does, because if there's injuries, he's going to have to fill in other places, and that might expose Wong a little bit, which would face have to force him to face more lefties, unless they move Sam Haggerty to second base a little bit, which I guess they could do, although for the most part last year, he was only in the outfield. But this is why Dylan Moore is valuable. Dylan Moore put up over a 2F war this past year. He's actually a really good defender at second base. He hasn't played a ton of games there in his career. To be exact, he's played 106 career games at second base. But he's got 10 defensive runs saved there in that time. So he thrives at second base. He doesn't thrive as much at shortstop, even though that's where he's going to be the backup. But when you get him at second base, that's a good defender. And again, for a guy that's going to hit a lot of lefties, this feels like you're playing to the strengths of a guy that has a lot when you use him the right way. And in terms of innings, the 762 innings at second base in his career, that's a little bit under a full season's worth of innings. A full season's worth of innings on defense is around 1,000. So it's a little bit underneath that. But any position where you got 10 defensive runs saved at, is very good for over the course of a full season. So I don't know, you could say Dylan would have plus 12 defensive runs saved at second base. Well, it just so happens that Colton Wong's two best seasons of, of defensive runs saved at second base, uh, I believe is seven. Uh, it is 13 and 17 defensive runs saved at second base. So that puts Dylan Moore right up there with Colton Wong. And on the offensive side for Dylan Moore, where... He was he was pretty balanced this past year, to be honest. I, I always forget his splits are a little bit more balanced than we would think, even though he is going to be the left-handed. When a lefty's on the mound, he's going to be the guy starting at second base. But he was decently balanced against lefties versus righties. 
So he had a 137 WRC plus when he faced lefties this year, had a 15% walk rate, which I kind of chuckled at. But overall, he was still an above average hitter against righties too. So if Colton Wong's hurt, you wouldn't lose too much by having Dylan Moore stay in there against righties. He just might swing and miss a little bit more and not walk as much. Dylan Moore for the year had a 126 WRC plus in 2022. That's 26% above league average. I've been waiting to throw this out. Let me list a few guys that put up a worse WRC plus than Dylan Moore this past year. Uh-oh. Ryan Reynolds, <laughs> Sean Murphy, Reese Hoskins, Josh Bell, Matt Olson, Corey Seager, Ronald Acuna, Dansby Swanson, Marcus Semien. Do those names mean anything to anybody? Because Dylan Moore outhit all of them. This is Lyle's game six where he's been waiting to prove all the haters wrong all year. <laughs> I was right on Dylan Moore. <laughs> hey, numbers never lie. By offensive metrics, he was be- he was People better than lie all, those all the guys. time. Men That's lie, true. women lie, but numbers never lie. Remember numbers that one. Never lie. I stole that quote from somebody. I forget who said it. You can I mean, Google that look, on the internet. Look, Dylan Moore played significantly less than most of those guys because he played a specific role. But the point I'm trying to get at here with him is he's a good hitter. And this is what I believed about him really ever since 2020, when in that short sample, he played really well. And we saw it this past year. So you take his strengths, you put him against lefties where he was 37% better than league average. And he plays a position a position where he thrives at second base. I mean, you want to combine the two together. I'm not going to sit here and stamp projections for anybody, but there's a real world where Colton Wong and Dylan Moore can each put up two and a half wins at least. And if you were going to tell any Mariners fan the second base position is going to combine for a five war this year, that's an all-star player. Yes, it comes from two different people. But that's all-star production, and those guys can do that. It's pretty much what Jeff McNeil put up this year at second base for the Mets. He had 5.4 wins above replacement. If you're thinking in that terms, in that scope. Lau, do you also have a list of all the 2022 free agents who Dylan Moore had a higher wins above replacement than uh, in the 22 season? Chris Bryant? Trevor Story? Did he have I'm a pretty, higher I know than- he had a higher one than Chris Bryant, that's for sure. Chris Bryant barely played. Okay, I'm going to look this up on the fly. I mean, since Bryant barely played, Demo absolutely put up a higher war. Story put up two and a half. Okay, so he still beat yeah, out close. more by a little bit. But so how many games did Trevor be. play? So Story played what was a total of this year, 94 games. All right, so he didn't have an awful year. Two and a half wins in 94 games where I think Demo played a little, little more than that for sure. But the point being, yeah, I mean, everybody wanted Chris Bryant last year, right? And Dylan Moore outplayed him. So Dylan Moore played 104 games this year, so a little bit more than Story. But this is a productive player. This is uh, Dylan Moore is never going to be an all-star, but he is the type of player that every competitive postseason team wants on their roster because he can play good defense. He has some pop. He can hit lefties. He's fine against righties, too. He walks. He steals bases. He's versatile. Like, it's it's always been kind kind of a pain to think about letting Chris Bryant go. Sorry, Chris Taylor, not Chris Bryant. But I'm not saying Dylan Moore is an equivalent of Chris Taylor, but he can play that type of role, and he's done that now the last couple of years. One aspect of the second base group that we haven't touched on yet that I would personally like to touch on, the base running aspect. You mentioned it a little bit just a second ago with stolen bases, but the numbers back it up. If you look at the Mariners, they have – Three plus base runners on their 2022 roster. Julio, far and away number one. Dylan Moore and Sam Haggerty. Now, Dylan Moore and Sam Haggerty were primarily last year sent in off the bench late in games. That's when they were at their best. You mentioned fill in here, fill in there. Sam Haggerty had his stretch in July where he hit the the he hit the ball to the moon every day. But in general, their best was when they came off the bench late in games when you needed them on the base paths, and that's what they did. And the, the numbers reflected it with how good they were on the base paths. Well, Colton Wong, uh, might I add, last year, the only Mariner who was a better base runner than him was Julio. That's it. Julio was uh, 
a little bit over four base running runs measured by fan graphs. Wong is at 3.4. Dylan Moore was at 2.5. Sam was right in that area too. And if you look at the Mariners roster, there are not very many good base runners on that roster. You know who was behind those three? It was Julio, Sam, and Dylan. You know who was number four? Let me take a guess here. Was it JP? No, it was Carlos Santana, who is no longer a Mariner. <laughs> JP was negative. I can pull it up here really quick. Let me see if I can, uh, if I can. Fangraphs always runs really slow. So we'll see if I can get up, get it up in time. But man, oh man. If you just look at the Mariners roster from last year, I mean, they were, they were a bad base running team. They, in terms of individual base runners, they were they were just not a good base running team. I'm gonna just Google Dylan Moore here, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll see if we can get the Mariners up. But it they they needed more they need more good base runners on the team, and they got another one. So I summarized it like this. Well, I'm gonna wait for fan graphs to load, and my computer is just gonna just chug through this. Here we go. Okay, I got it up, so we can get it up before I get to my like the true traits of the Mariners second baseman this year. Let's let's go. Let's let's measure our base runners out here. Because I, I just kind of want to give you a perspective of how important this could be with having another guy who's that good on the base paths. So Julio had 4.3 base running runs. Is that the official term of that state? BSR. I believe that is base running runs. 4.3. Dylan Moore was at 2.5. Sam Haggerty was at uh, 2.2. Remember, both those two, essentially part-timers, you would think. They starts here, they start here and there, but Dylan Moore and Sam Haggerty, in terms of base running, part-time so you could say those three those two and julio the the best three base runners on the mariners roster now after that it it just gets so so shaky on this roster from last year i mean who's after them carlos santana at 0.7 kurt casali at 0.4 uh kevin padlow Marcus Wilson, Andrew Knapp, like that, those are all, I, everyone I just listed there were the only Mariners who were plus on the base pads last year. The only ones. So to put that in some perspective, that means the most of the regular starters were in the negative. Ty was in the negative. Suarez was in the negative. JP in the negative. Cal in the negative. There are not a lot of good base runners on this team. I mean, Mitch, I'm sure was in the negative and Ty Oscar probably will be too. You had one everyday player who was a plus base runner. Yeah. One of nine. Yeah, so to have Wong uh, in the lineup is going to be really helpful. And I and I proposed this to you yesterday. Guess who was uh, last? Oh, it was Jesse Winker. Yeah, it was Jesse Winker. It's not too surprising when you think about it. And he was far and away the worst, too. He was negative 4.3. Ty was the second worst. Gino, Justin Upton somehow managed to lose the Mariners nearly two runs on the pace pads, even though he only played 17 games. That that was honestly impressive. I you know I respect you, Justin Upton, for somehow getting minus 1.7. Yeah, minus 1, 1.8 in 17 games. I mean, Abe was bad. JP was bad. Cal was bad. Jared was graded as a negative base runner too. Their dog, so better get the uh, PR team ready. Oh, I'm ready for it. I mean, he can still be a good base runner long term. He but can yeah, be. I mean, he for, was not a he was not a positive base runner last year. That doesn't surprise me. He got thrown out a few times. But to your point, the reason we just went down that rabbit hole is because having Colton Wong, who is a good base runner is going to help this team. And to have a guy in the lineup, whether it be Moore or Wong every day, who is a plus runner, that matters. So here's what Mariner's second baseman will bring this year. That This is your ideal scenario for Mariner's second baseman, if they're healthy. Plus on-base skills, plus defense, plus base running. That's a valuable player right there. And that's what the Mariners want out of these two. That's what they see with Dylan Moore and Colton Wong splitting 145 games at second base in an ideal world. Since the Mariners traded Robinson Cano, they have not found a long-term fit at second base. They haven't had a whole lot of production at second base, but 2023 has the chance to be their most productive year at the position. And now a few seasons, 
Well, TJ, we ready to move on to our MLB wraparound? Uh, let, let's touch on a couple other players. I know we've gone kind of long with our second base preview. We mentioned Sam Haggerty a little bit. He, okay. you know, he's the emergency option at second base. If, if someone is hurt, Sam's probably in there. More envisioned Dylan Moore. He, he's the same as Dylan Moore. He's much better as a right-handed hitter, uh, as a righty. So Sam Haggerty's a switch hitter. He's much better from his right side. His, Lyle, have you looked at his right-handed numbers recently? I remember looking at them oh, at the end of the year. The, he's, really good. He's Aaron Judge. He's Aaron Judge from the right side. He's two eleven WRC plus from the right side. <laughs> so if the Mariners can get if the Mariners can get Sam Haggerty in there versus a lefty on the mound at second base, I don't think they would be too hesitant to do that because Sam Haggerty is very good as a right hand hitter. He only played twelve innings at second base last year. Again, wouldn't expect it too much. But nothing's impossible. And then the other options I threw out, I mean, Tommy Lastella could always make the roster and be your emergency backup second baseman. Mason McCoy in AAA, that's probably your number one backup in the minor leagues, and then you could trade for someone as well. It's mostly going to be those two guys at the top. The best thing about a platoon is that you already have two starting second basemen on your roster. However, if someone goes down, Haggerty, McCoy, La Stella, probably some other options there. Yeah, a little bit of depth, but most of the heavy lifting is going to be rested on the shoulders of Wong and Dylan Moore, which has a chance to be a better situation than the Mariners have had in a long time. So it could be exciting. Okay, now are we ready to transition? Let's do it. Let's get into our MLB wraparound here. Well, TJ, we're going to catch up on a couple things from last week. First and foremost, Hall of Fame results. That came out a week ago today. One player elected in, Scott Rowland, career phenomenal third baseman. He will go into Cooperstown along with Fred McGriff this summer. But Rowland, the only player that the voters inducted in and voted in here this season. It's good for Scott Rowland. Not quite as familiar with Scott Rowland as I am with a lot of other historical players, but a very good player. His wins above replacement up there in terms of what you want for Hall of Fame. He's at 70.1 for baseball reference wins above replacement. A very good defensive third baseman, a career OPS of, of 855 along with plus plus defense. It's You could argue a Hall of Famer. Again, he didn't get unanimously voted in 76% of the vote. You only need 75%, so ends in. I just think this year's a very Hall of Very Good. Maybe not uh, perhaps Hall of Fame unless you have an excuse for A-Rod to get in. I don't really, even though we're pro-steroid guys getting in, A-Rod doesn't qualify because he cheated during times where they said you can't cheat, and he did it anyway, and he got caught for a lot of drugs, (laughs) a lot of steroids. So we're not going to put A-Rod in there, although how many votes? A-Rod still got 35%. This system never makes sense to me. It, it doesn't with, with how some people vote. But you know, that's it for me. I mean, Todd Helton will probably get in next year, 72% of the vote. He has some just absurd stat lines when you look at his seasons. Billy Wagner, too, one of the all-time great relievers. He might get in as well. I don't know if Andrew Jones will get in, but we, we, we'll we see. This is, it's, you know, it's a, it's a progress here as we go along. I know you have some more thoughts on this than I do, but just thought I would get mine out of the way. I'm going to throw a scenario out here for you, or really just kind of a comparison. Brooks Robinson's in the Hall of Fame, right? Some people call him one of the greatest third basemen ever. Brooks Robinson won an MVP for sure, and he was a phenomenal defender. But for the most of his career, he was no imposing presence in the batter's box. His career OPS was 723. He got into the Hall of Fame with ease. Scott Rowland put up an 855 career OPS. Now, Robinson did accrue a little bit more war than Rowland did in his career. Robinson was a little over 78, where Rowland was a little over 70. But Rowland was the much better offensive player. He hit over 300 homers. Again, career 855 OPS. And Rowland, again, 70 career war. 
almost every player that's ever put up that many wins in their career gets in. The only guys who haven't either are PED users or they're not eligible yet. Guys like Bel- uh, Beltre, Scherzer, Kershaw, Granke, and those guys will all eventually get in. I know Scott Rowland's kind of polarizing. To me, he was always a Hall of Famer. And again, when you compare it to Brooks Robinson, I think that shows he deserves to be in. Yes. And I always say, like, there's always some really bad players in the Hall of Fame. You can go look at the Hall of Fame and some of the people's careers, and you realize there's some pretty shitty players in the Hall of Fame somehow that got in, whether via Veterans Committee or Honorary or whatever. So it is what it is. Again, I just don't, I don't remember watching Scott Rowan play as much. You probably remember it a little bit more. It, it like he's probably a Hall of Famer. It's a pretty weak class, so I don't I don't have too much. There will be a couple guys next year, like you said. Helton will probably get in next year. Adrian Beltre is absolutely going to get in in his first year on the ballot next year. But to put it in even more perspective, for Rowan, put up 116 career defensive runs saved. And DRS didn't even exist the first seven years of his career. So it could have been that much higher. He was one of the best defensive third third basemen ever. And there's been plenty of numbers out there over the years just to back up his case. So again, it'll be debated for a while. I think he's a Hall of Famer. I do have to get this last thing off, though, before we move on. Mm -hmm. Uh, First and foremost, kind of to just piggyback off what you said, I agree. Billy Wagner is one of the best relievers ever. He should get in. I hope he eventually gets in. But more what I wanted to say... If you were one of the voters who has the privilege of getting to vote on the Baseball Hall of Fame and you casted a vote for Bronson Arroyo, John Lackey, or Mike Napoli, you should lose your right to vote moving forward because those guys each got a vote. I don't know from who. I don't know if it was hometown writers. I don't know what warranted it, but those guys got votes and I have no idea how. Baseball writers are a unique group, Lyle. We talk about it almost every single day <laughs> with some of these ballots that come out. It's that, and it's the it's the writers who send in a blank ballot every year because they're like, well, there's like a PD user on the ballot, so I just refuse to vote. <laughs> I have a fun Todd Helton stat to throw out that I saw the other day okay. in honor that he's going to be inducted, most likely be inducted a year from now. In 2000, uh, again, just... To, to embrace that he's going to go into the Hall of Fame. In 2000, Todd Helton slashed 372, 463, 698, and finished fifth in the MVP voting. That's crazy. What Was it Barry Three. that won that year? Uh, no, Barry started in two... Let me, let me click on that. Let's see. I actually don't remember who won MVP in 2000. Oh, it was Giambi. Oh, and Todd okay, Helton had a higher OPS than Jason Giambi did, I believe. Let's see. Oh, wait, that's AL, NL. No, this was Jeff Kent. What a year. Oh. It went, it went Kent, Bonds, Piazza, Jim Edmonds, Todd Helton. And Todd Helton led the lead, had bet, a better batting average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS, had more hits, had more RBIs, uh, had more home runs than everyone but Barry Bonds. Or at least then that was ahead of him. Jeff Kent's another guy I think should be a Hall of Famer just because the second base class is not that strong these days. And he's one of the best second basemen in the history of the game. But I'm going to stop myself here because honestly, we could do a whole Hall of Fame show. I'll let you transition us. So last week we missed a a pretty significant trade in in, the offseason, which has been a pretty quiet trade market for the most part. But this was... Significant. Marlon said they were going to trade Pablo Lopez. They were looking to deal him at the deadline, and they eventually send him to Minnesota. So they trade Pablo Lopez and a pair of prospects to Minnesota for Luis Arise, who is just coming off his age 25 season, won the American League batting title. An interesting trade. Good for both sides, I think, because it both addressed a need, even though I just don't get the Marlins just uh, the Marlins trading blue chip talent. I don't understand that. I had a hard time digesting this one at first. After I gave it some time, I decided maybe it makes a little more sense. And again, I think there's arguments for both sides, for keeping Lopez, for trading Lopez. If you're looking for reasons to why the Marlins did it, I think they're going to try and rely on their young pitching depth. 
even without Lopez, because this is an offensively challenged team. There's no doubt about it. They just went out and got the batting champ in Luis Arise. On the mound, even without Lopez, you still have Sandy Alcantara, who just won the Cy Young. Jesus Luzardo has four years of club control. Edward Cabrera in 14 starts last year was pretty promising. You're still hoping both Sixto Sanchez and Max Meyer get healthy and get on the mound and live up to what their upside can be. And then Yuri Perez, who's a top 10 prospect in baseball, is on the way. I'm not saying that it works out for the Marlins for sure, but if that's their logic, I do understand it with the idea of trying to add a really good bat. I think you forgot Trevor Rogers too. Oh, and Rogers. Yep. Who's also pretty decent last year. And it make from the Marlins side, you think about it this way. So mention all those pitchers. Last year offensively, 27th in batting average uh, and on base percentage, 28th in slugging percentage, 28th in runs, 27th in walks. All things that Luis Arise does very well. A lineup that, if you look at it, you don't say there's a person you want to keep. You, you, you're you slam dunk, untradeable, untouchable, not on the roster besides Jazz Chisholm. Not a single person besides Jazz. And you're adding Arise to that. He's got three years of club control left. So I understand it. It's just not the kind of first baseman I would really trade for and the kind of first baseman that really impacts a game in the modern version of baseball. Luis Arise is a throwback. He is one of a kind when it comes to first baseman. Not striking out, making a ton of contact, not hitting for a lot of power. It's a it's a rarity out of a first baseman. But he is valuable. I mean, he's objectively valuable. Yes, you're right. He doesn't hit the ball out of the yard like some first basemen do. But he put up four and a half wins last year, and he has three years of club control. So I do get it. Also on Rodgers, it was 2021 that he was really good. He actually was pretty bad last year. But to be fair, I think if you're the Marlins, you can also hope that he bounces back. So I think they feel like they have more pitching depth than they do offensive depth. And they decided, look, we need a couple more impact bats. And they went out and they got a rise. I will say on Pablo Lopez, his season was a little interesting because he was so good in the first couple of months. I mean, in the first half, he put up a 286 ERA. Second half, it was nearly five. I don't know if the Marlins saw something there or not, but just thought it was something to note. Another thing with the Marlins organization why they had to make this trade. They don't even have any hitters in their farm system for the most part. They have Jacob Berry, who's their highest rated hitting prospect. He's barely in the top 50, and he was just drafted last year. Just. And he was one of the more MOB-ready guys coming out of LSU. That doesn't necessarily he's going to come up and rake this year, if at all. Maybe he makes it to AAA. Maybe he just stays in AA all year. Otherwise, the where are the Marlins getting their hits from? I don't know. Were they were they driving in runs? Who are going to be the producers? Another reason you had to make this trade. And Barry may be a DH for his career when he eventually gets there. I saw some video the other day of him taking some ground balls, and you know, it didn't Stiff. look it looked, didn't look all that pretty because that <laughs> was his knock coming out of LSU and into the draft too. Was good bat. I don't know if he's ever going to have a position. So we'll see how that fares going forward. But you're right. In the Marlins system, there's more pitching than there is hitting. So to go get a rise, it's tough to give up Lopez, but it makes sense. Hey, remember when Pablo Lopez was a Mariner? I remember when David Phelps was a Mariner. Yeah, that went well. That did, that went really well. Nice job, Jerry. I'm sure Jerry thinks about that quite often. You know, DePoto's made some really good trades, and every GM's going to miss. So... He did miss on that one. Lopez was a long we'll, way away when they we'll traded him. We'll chop this one up as a miss. That is a miss. Yes, that's a miss. <laughs> okay, let's keep going here. TJ, maybe a topic that is a, a topic that's a favorite of ours. Maybe no more enjoyable topic we can possibly talk up on this show. Cole Irvin traded from the A's to the Orioles this past week. Now, as a Mariners fan... It's a little sad to see Cole Irvin leave the AL West. We'll get to that here in just a minute. I'm going to I'm going to keep everybody just on their toes for a second. I'm just going to objectively talk about what this trade can do for the Orioles really fast and that is 
objectively <laughs> adding a middle of the rotation starter who was the A's best arm last year. I think with the Orioles, a rotation of Irvin, Kyle Gibson, John Means when he gets back from Tommy John, Kramer, Bradish. It's not flashy, but it's a rotation that can compete. They'll probably be in the wild card hunt. So understandable from the Orioles' perspective. Why the A's gave him up? Why do they give anybody up? Is that rotation good enough? Do you think? I'm not saying to win the World Series, but again, they'll be in the hunt like they were this past year, I think, because their rotation's only going to get mm. better, especially with Means back. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think so. I, don't, I think so. I don't know if there's enough upside there. I don't think so. If Grayson Rodriguez still has the highest upside of any arm in their entire system and on their major league roster, so I'm not sure that rotation itself, unless Grayson Rodriguez comes in and throws 130 dynamite innings in his rookie season after missing all of last year, so 130 innings actually seems like a stretch. If that's enough. Regardless, Orioles have more arms, which is good. Because they didn't sign anybody in free agency when they said, yeah, we could use a, a free agent starter in our rotation. And they didn't sign anybody and made some very similar comments as we heard out of the Pacific Northwest two years ago of why they didn't sign any free agents. Well, they brought in Kyle Gibson, which I don't know what you think you're going to get out of him at this point. He was really good in 21 when he was with the Rangers, but wasn't so great ever since he got to Philly. We'll see if he can rebound in Baltimore. And he's going to a smaller park now. Well, probably even. I mean, both those ballparks are a pitcher's nightmare. Although, the Orioles did move their fences back to make it a hitter's nightmare. Because that left field wall is going to be my speak your mind till the rest of eternity. Because that wall is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah. I'm How you hit a ball 400 in like 15 feet and it stays in the park. You got me. And it's not even close to going out either. Anyways, Lyle, should we get to the fun part of this? I'm just, I'm dying to get to this. Let's get to the fun part. So the A's trade Cole Irvin away, just like they have with every half-decent player on their roster over the last few years. Cole Irvin's gone. The A's continue to implode. Let's talk about Cole Irvin, who is maybe responsible for, is it fair to say, the greatest self-own in Mariners history? Quote, let's read the, let's read the quote that set it all off and just sent us into a frenzy. (laughs) So the A's lose to the Mariners in May of 2020, uh, in May of 2021, a 4-3 loss. Cole Irvin was asked after the game how he gave up so many hits to the Mariners that day. Quote, bottom line is I wasn't executing. I wasn't executing in two strike counts. And at the time, I wasn't getting ahead. Yeah, there was a lot of weak contact and some swings that ended up being hits. But I think at the end of the day, just pitch execution needs to be a lot better. And a team like that should not be putting up 10 hits hits against me or against anyone. I'm extremely disappointed in my efforts tonight. But um, now, Lyle, would you like to hear Cole Irvin's career line against the Mariners? Let's hear it. Oh, and six, an eight, four, two ERA in 25 and two thirds innings. He allowed 41 hits. He had 16 strikeouts and 12 walks, allowed a career slash line against the Mariners. 357, 422, 522. Okay, let me read that again. A career slash line against the Mariners, 357, 422, 522. He made the Mariners an all-star hitter by being on the mound. So that adds up to a 944 OPS if I did the math right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you get on camera in front of the media and say, yeah, a team like that should basically never have a good offensive day against any team anywhere in baseball. And what's the result at the end of 2021? This was tweeted out at the end of the year, the final time the Mariners lit up Cole Irvin. And it was in the last week of the season, too, when Seattle needed to keep winning to fight for that playoff spot. Cole Irvin put up an 869 ERA against the Mariners in 2021. In 19 and two-thirds innings, 
He gave up 19 earned runs. And that's the highest ERA against the Mariners of any pitcher in a single season when you threw minimum five starts. 8-6-9. You think you'd back up your talk when you say some shit like that. You think you would. <laughs> and And the best part is, it carried over to 2022. They only got to face him one time. And I remember you and I were going back and forth throughout the year during those A's series when the Mariners kept missing Cole Irvin. And we're talking about this dude's ducking him. He doesn't want to face him. He's behind closed doors asking for starts to get skipped and the rotation to get changed around so he can avoid him. Finally, he faced him once in 2022. And the Mariners lit him up again for five earned runs in six innings. It just doesn't end. <laughs> and that's, it's funny, Lyle, because five runs in six innings sounds bad, but based on his prior, his prior production against the Mariners, that actually made his ERA go down. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just hope this keeps up when he goes to Baltimore. Hopefully it wasn't just an A's curse. Hopefully it's just a Cole Irvin curse and the baseball gods just don't let him go. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Cole Irvin, for doing us such a service. Thank you. It was it was really entertaining, I'll say that much. I've I've not had more fun watching a midweek A's M's game in my entire life until Cole Irvin walked into mine. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. All right, let's let's wrap up this segment. We got a couple extensions to get to. Jeff McNeil uh, got an extension, four years, $50 million, with a team option uh, at the end for $13.75 million with the Mets. One of the best players in baseball, batting champ last year, 326 average, 382 on base, 454 slugging, 140 OPS plus, over five wins above replacement. Could have been a Mariner. So close. He was so so close. He was he was reportedly going to be packaged in that Kelnick Dunn trade that sent Cano and Edwin Diaz to the Mets. Brody Van Wagenen had no issues, including McNeil, but I think it was until he got both fan pushback and front office pushback where he finally had to say, All right, I think we might have to pull back here and take him out of the trade, which is such a shame because look, I'm excited for Colton Wong and Dylan Moore. But if the Mariners had Jeff McNeil on this team, who, I mean, talk about you could lead him off, hit Julio too, be amazing. And there wouldn't be any pressure on Jared Kelnick, I don't think. None. The, the trade would have already been won. The Mariners already would, they would have won the trade in 2019 when Jeff McNeil hit over 20 home runs. They It, it would have been instant. They, they would have won the trade and they're like, Jared, take your time, man. You can do whatever you want. You're not the the poster child of this trade anymore. Do, do your thing. But the Mets made a good roster decision. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm still salty about that. I'm, I'm not going to forgive them. I am too. And, and that was an easy extension for the Mets. So you said it. He's been one of the best players in baseball, especially this past year. The Mets honestly have this Correa cloud hanging over their heads. For the most part, they've had an unbelievable off season. I mean, Bring back Edwin Diaz. You bring back Brandon Nemo. You extend McNeil. You get Verlander. You get Kodai Senga. That's a really good offseason. Besides the fact they're a little old, is that would be my only critique of the roster. In terms of talent, they're talented. And there's a reason they won 101 games last year. They still have so much talent on the roster. They have a top five, top three shortstop in Francisco Lindor. They have the top catching prospect in baseball, although... I don't think Francisco Alvarez is going to be a catcher for very long. I'm pretty sure he's still a project behind the plate, but his bat is big league ready, and they might just throw him in there at DH to have him hit for most of the most of the time if if that's what works for him. So they're sitting pretty good, and you know Steve Cohen's going to be in the market next year for one notable free agent that's going to hit the market. There's no doubt Steve Cohen might try to offer him six hundred million dollars for all we know. But the Mets, again, they made a smart move. They extend McNeil. They keep this core together. They're going to be good. Okay, last topic on the wraparound. It's been a little bit of a longer wraparound this week because there wasn't as much Mariners news. But the Rays made three extensions as well. Pete Fairbanks, 
fireballer from the right side, three years, $12 million extension. Yandy Diaz, one of the best bats in the Rays lineup, three-year, $24 million extension. And Jeffrey Springs, who had a really good year on the mound, four years for $31 million. The Rays usually are not given a big budget, but they make the most of what they have. That's probably all they can afford. They are the only big contract they've signed is Wander. And that's a slam dunk, obviously. And Wander, we think, is going to be worth well more than that contract he signed last year. But with these guys, especially relievers, you're just never sure. But if Pete Fairbanks can do what he did last year with the con- the contract that he has, three years, $12 million, that's $4 million a year. He had a he had a stretch at the end of last year, I mean, just last year alone. He had a 1-1-3 ERA, only pitched 22 innings. He missed three months with an injury. Didn't allow a run in his final 22 innings. Had a strikeout rate of 43%. That's worth $4 million. One of the more underrated guys. It's it just one of those guys they, you know, they they acquire from another team that don't doesn't want him. And he was the guy, he was traded for Nick Solak, I believe. That was the that trade. And he has turned into really one of the best relievers in all of baseball and gets an extension. So it's good for the Rays. They'll have him for three more years. The first time I really remember Pete Fairbanks standing out was that 2020 postseason where he was just getting up on the hill and throwing absolute gas every time out there and he just looked dominant. And like you said, he didn't throw a whole lot of innings this past year, but when he did, man, he was nails. Yandy Diaz, to get that guy for $8 bucks a year for a guy that just put up a 143 OPS plus and has really been an offensive catalyst most of his career, really for the last five years. To get that guy signed for another three years and to only have to pay him $8 million, he puts up one war. He lives up to the contract. Seems pretty pretty much a no-brainer for the Rays. Very good player on my fantasy team, too. Shout out to you, Deandi. Very versatile. Oh, got, oh he was got on some good. Yeah, he was. Uh, did not win the championship this year, unfortunately. That'll be a next okay. year thing. Maybe you and I should both make a fantasy baseball team. No, oh, that'd be no. Funny. Well, we got to th- we well let's let's think on this idea. But Yandy's an everyday player. Whenever you can get a player like that, again, the Rays are never going to pay market value for guys. That's just not how they operate. They whether the ownership can actually afford it or not, maybe they can a little bit if they move that stadium from St. Pete closer to Tampa. Which I believe there was some news out on Twitter this week that they would. Not totally certain. We'll 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 circle back on that and check on it when it comes to actual news. But maybe they could afford a little bit more when they move it back across the bay to, to Tampa. But Yanni Diaz, an everyday guy, and, and Jeffrey Springs as well, another very, very good arm they have. And just kind of keeping the core together. This is a team, again, that will win with a low budget and great pitching and good enough hitting with, with a young superstar of Wander Franco. Yeah. I mean, last thing before we wrap up here. I mean, Jeffrey Springs was so underrated last year. It wasn't that talked about. At least it felt like he wasn't. 246 ERA, 95th percentile in chase rate. He misses a lot of bats. That is a really good arm that the Rays just extended. Well, it was a good wraparound, Lyle. But as we know, it's, it's I'm really looking forward to this. So let's speak our minds. Speak your mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. All right, Lyle, what's on your mind this week? Okay, I have two. The first one is a follow-up from last week. I watched that 90s show because they've only put out one season. It was good. I didn't know how well done it would be, but it was same location, brought a lot of the old characters back. I didn't have high hopes, but I was very pleasantly surprised. So that was a win. Well, I still haven't watched it, but I might. I might think about okay. it. Start with that decision. 70 show if you do. But how many seasons is it? Well, it's a lot, but you can kind of just watch it sporadically. I mean, it makes more sense if you watch it in order, but it's kind of one of those shows where it's it's a you know, it's a sitcom and if you watch some here and there, you'll pick up on enough. I'll think about it. We'll see if I okay. ever get to it. I don't know. I mean, I've been really liking my action shows recently. Uh go watch okay. Last of Us. I'm, My speaker I'm mind. I was going to say, I'm, no, go I'm interested to, I'm interested to hear what yours is going to be here because I have one more, but I'm curious if we have the same one. So go ahead. 
my speak your mind is Super Bowl week with Eagles fans. Lyle and I will be in Arizona next week. The Eagles won the NFC Championship yesterday over the Niners, 31-7. to And I am so pleased to say, after seeing the celebrations on the streets of downtown Philadelphia yesterday, that Lyle and I are going to get to go to Scottsdale, get, going to get to go to Phoenix, Arizona, and live it up with Philadelphia Eagle fans on Super Bowl week in Arizona. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> is, the, is the city going to be destroyed before the Super Bowl starts? Oh, I don't think so. I think that's I think that's a Philadelphia city thing. I think the people that make it over and I don't know. I don't know. There might if we go out to Old Town one night and the Eagles fans are already out there. I mean, maybe there'll be some bottles thrown or someone gets up on the roof of of Casa or, or Hi-Fi or something in Old Town. It'll be something like that. I'm just really looking forward to it because my energy when I get intoxicated in terms of the rest of my friend group gets pretty up there. But to see some of these Philly fans at their peak, I just can't get the video out of my brain where there's 20 people standing on top of a bus station in downtown Philadelphia, and all they weigh so much, it just shatters, and they all fall through it in just peak Philly energy, and that's the energy I need for next week when we'll be out of town. <laughs> I can't wait. Okay, Ugh. are you ready for my second one here? I was surprised you didn't yeah. have this, but my second thought on our Speak Your Mind segment, the NBA is a Broadway show. It is a theater performance on Broadway, and it was brought to life even more so this past weekend when, one, LeBron got hacked going to the rim as the final seconds of regulation went on. There was no call, and then Patrick Beverly grabs a camera, <laughs> walks over to the ref, shows him. Here is footage that you missed this call, and he gets teed up. In what world does that happen? I mean, remember when Nelson Cruz took the selfie with Joe West at the All-Star Game? That was a bit. That was for fun in a lighthearted environment. Could you imagine, like, this is a throwback example because I'm trying to throw think of guys that throw temper tantrums. Could you imagine in baseball, Niger Morgan bringing a camera to the plate to an umpire saying, look at this call you just missed? No, only in the NBA does that happen. I need I need a baseball player to do that because they have the iPads in the dugouts now to watch film. They should do that. I mean, I'm serious. Some, some, someone gets so pissed off at the umpire, they walk out and they go, look, look, <laughs> look at the call you missed. I sent that to you on Twitter, and I'm like, like – and I saw I saw Pat Bev. I'm like, there's just no way you can't tell me Vince McMahon is not behind all of this. Just typing <laughs> this all out on a keyboard saying, OK, Pat Bev, OK, you're going to go get the camera and they're just going to give you this three thousand dollar camera. And you're going to walk over to the rep and you're going to point at the, the point at the camera and tell the ref he's full of shit. And then the ref's going to tee you up. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is the WWE on hardwood. It really is. I mean. Again, you don't see that in any other league. And it was so on brand to the point people were laughing and they were saying, this is insanity, but you'd expect it more there than anywhere else in sports. That is true. I love the league. We got, I'm usually not an NBA person to the playoff start, but I just, I love logging onto Twitter and just seeing the stupidest thing ever come up. And it, it'll only get better as the season goes along. Shout out Pat Bev. He's usually, he when it comes to Lakers stuff, Pat Bev is usually up there when it comes to scripting, scripted stuff that you'd say, nah, was that actually true? But, you know, Pat Bev did. He uh, he, he did it. That's, that is one of the best ways I've ever seen someone get a technical. I will say that. I think it might be the best way. It's up there with when Jason Kidd purposely spilled his drink on the court to get a timeout so he could draw up an extra play. <laughs> but but <laughs> yeah. Pat Bev, man, they say this league for a reason, and you took it to the fullest. I'm with you. What, what a show the NBA is. Okay, that'll just about wrap us up for this week of the Marine Layer Podcast. As always... If you want to listen to the full podcast, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or the video form on YouTube. Also, guys, if you're going to listen on the audio forms or on YouTube too, 
leave a review. Uh, let us know what you think. Give us a five-star review. We want to hear from you guys. So please let us know. If you want to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube shorts at Marine Layer Pod. For TJ Matthewson, this has been Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys next week.